really useful, you know, when uh, a member of the congregation asks a minister to preach on a specific theme. Sai was more than happy to tackle something Alec Fruin suggested. He wanted to know why. Why? Why God created the universe in the first place? Why God took human form in Jesus? Why Jesus had to die on the cross? And why we celebrate that rather troubling event, troubling particularly, I think, to scientific minds like Alex, that rather troubling event we call the Ascension. But we'll come to that at the end of January. There are many, many more why questions, and we can't answer them all. We've got to restrict ourselves to these four, and they'll take us to the end of January and the threshold of Lent. So this morning, we're asking, why did God create the universe? And right away, of course, you, you can see an escape route, can't you? Why did God create the universe? Well, I don't know. Ask him. Is there an answer anyway? An answer which we could understand. I'm sure that there are many answers. And it's certain that in one short sermon we won't be able to cover even a tiny proportion. But I want to begin by finding some clues in the scriptures. So come with me to the first chapter of Genesis, part of which was our Old Testament reading. And presumably, you'll find it on page one in the church Bibles. You should do anyway. Now, before we go any further, let's get rid, once and for all, of that sterile argument which Professor Dawkins loves to keep going between those who take the first chapters of Genesis literally and those who maintain that Evolution has consigned them to myth and legend. It is a sterile argument, and I want to get it out of the way right at the beginning. There are a number of things to note. First of all, let's remember that the intellectual and cultural environment into which Genesis was written is light years away from our own. The way we understand the universe and how it works would be quite baffling to the people who wrote Genesis and who read it for the first time. Can you imagine trying to explain to someone who lived thousands of years before Christ how Wi-Fi works or what it is? I don't understand how it works. I just use it to send messages through the ether and complain bitterly when it doesn't work. It's part of my cultural environment. It's there. It's part, it's, it's part of my daily experience, like switching on the light. And second, the way we communicate truth and the way it was communicated thousands of years ago are, again, poles apart. The truth to be communicated is unchangeable, unchangeably true. It remains the same. But the way in which it's expressed is bound to be different. For instance, our greater understanding of technology makes us much more aware of practical details in contrast to the, uh, the way the writer of Genesis was, to his priorities, the way he was thinking. Imagine the writer of Genesis being asked to describe the experience of flying in an airliner. 
Just imagine if you asked him to describe that. Apart from being lost for words, of course, I guess he would concentrate on the fear and wonder he felt as this prison into which he'd been strapped, roared through the clouds, driven and upheld by an unseen hand. Now, that's not how you and I would describe it, is it? But it's the way that he would have to describe it. He, he just wouldn't have the verbal and intellectual capacity to do so otherwise. But you couldn't accuse him of lying, could you? In fact, in terms that he could understand, his description would be fairly accurate. And thirdly, when a modern-day scientist speaks of creation, he or she is talking about things that are totally different to the concerns of the writer of Genesis. The scientist wants to know how it happened. Genesis gives a clue to why it happened, and more importantly, perhaps, it tells us something about the nature of the one who made it happen. Now, there are a whole number of things in Genesis 1 to 3 which are important. I want to just pick out six and go through them very, very quickly before we answer that question, why? Genesis 1 to 3 is God's word. As far as I'm concerned, it speaks with infallible authority and truth. There is nothing false in Genesis 1 to 3. But it tells us six important things. It tells us, first of all, that God created everything. And secondly, it tells us, and unfortunately, Janet left verse 31 out. Janet, I forgive you. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. It was very good. It tells us that he created everything. It tells us that his creation was good. It tells us that he had a specific purpose in mind in creating human beings. It tells us that he created us in such a way that only we can share a personal relationship with him. It tells us that something went wrong through human disobedience, and it tells us that he has a plan to put it right and start all over again. Now, none of those facts belong in a scientific textbook, and none of them in any way threaten or undermine anything that science is in the process of discovering. And I use that phrase absolutely purposely. None of those facts undermine or threaten the process that science is in the process of discovering, because science is a process. I remember so well reading Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Authority, and reading how he said that in the 1900s, when he was trained as a medical doctor, he was told that the pituitary gland was a vestigial remain of evolution, and it had no purpose whatsoever in human development. Now, that was scientific truth in the 1900s. That was absolutely true. If you asked a scientist what the pituitary gland was for, he would tell you it has no purpose whatsoever. But of course, we know now that the pituitary gland is absolutely crucial in human development. And if it weren't there, and human growth was, was, was uncontrolled, as it were, or, or un, un, 
directed by that particular operation of that gland, a human being would be the size of this church by the age of 18. I mean, they're, they're nearly there anyway, aren't they? But do you see how, how, how science, by its very nature, is discovering more and more and more and more? The truths that we find in Genesis chapter, chapters 1 to 3, they don't change. They are unchangeably true. And they don't belong in a scientific textbook. Now, over here, we have a young man sitting here in the congregation who's doing the training for learning and service course. Alex, Alex Jeffs. He's our guest at the moment in Rycroft, and we're very glad to have him. And because he's there, he has the free range of my books, my theological books, commentaries, etc., etc., and my wife's. Well, mine anyway. Oh, hers as well. Jolly good. Now, he, he, he came to me the other day, and he said, I've got to write an essay on, on the theme of, of how light is used in the Gospel of John. So I, I, I gave him commentaries. I gave him some other material. And I hope it was useful. I haven't actually seen the essay. It is written. Good, excellent. Now, supposing I had gone instead to my own books, I had gone downstairs to the kitchen, and I had picked out a cookery book. And I had taken it to Alex, and I had said, here you are, Alex, here's a book that will give you all the information you need. It would have been ridiculous, wouldn't it? But that isn't to say that the recipes wouldn't work. Now, all that is very important as a foundation to asking that question, why? So let's just repeat those three important points to note. First of all, Genesis 1 to 3 is God's word, and it communicates unchanging truth in just the same way as the whole of the scriptures communicate unchanging truth. But we have to understand that the cultural environment into which it was written is different to our own. We have to understand that the way those unchanging truths were communicated is different to the way we understand truth, the way we receive it. And thirdly, the questions they were seeking to answer in the time of Genesis are different to the questions people ask now. That doesn't mean the questions that Genesis seeks to answer are irrelevant. They are much more relevant, in a sense, than the scientific questions. Because the scientific questions come and go, and they're answered in different ways, and they're superseded, and today's absolute truth is yes, or rather, yesterday's absolute truth is today's ludicrous mistake. That's in the nature of the scientific process. None of that presents any challenge to the fact that Genesis 1 to 3 are part of God's infallible word. Okay. Original question. Why creation? Why did God create the universe in the first place? Let me put it like this. I remember my father. He was a, a good man, and he'd actually made a commitment to Christ when he was 15. I know that because I have the tiny... New Testament that he was given by someone from the Pocket Testament League in 1923. 
in the back of which is tangible evidence of that commitment. His faint signature after the words, I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. I'm so grateful for that New Testament because later in his life, my dear old dad lost his way with God. He was a good man, generous to a fault, and I remember and love him for his generosity. And maybe because he'd made that decision all those years ago, maybe I will meet him in heaven. I don't know whether you have memories of people like I have a memory of my father. Someone with an outstandingly good side to their nature. They do something kind or generous, and you say, well, that's just her. That's so-and-so all over. That's the kind of person she is. Of course, you'd say the same thing about folk who have bad sides to their natures, but we won't go there. So why did God create the universe? It's simple. Because he's a creator. It's in his nature to create. It's in our nature as well, isn't it? Human beings have a wonderfully creative side. Think of the beauty of art and music. We are creators too because we reflect the image of the one who made us. Just as for some people, kindness, generosity, and understanding come naturally, so creative impulse comes naturally to God. In verses 26 to 27 of Genesis 1, we have this mysterious statement. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, I said that one of the unchangeable truths that we find here in Genesis 1 is the fact that we were created in such a way that only we, could share a personal relationship with God. Now, you know that Jenny and I have an adorable miniature poodle, and he brings great delight to our lives. He's tremendous fun. I love to chase him from one room to another, daring him to uh, let me have and, and, and take away whatever he's holding between his teeth. We love him, but when we pray together after breakfast, he is a thundering nuisance. He puts his paws on my knees. He licks my hand. It's no good telling him, it's prayer time now, get down. He has no idea of what prayer is. He has no spiritual sense at all because he doesn't have the God-shaped gap in his nature that we have in ours. Why did God create the universe? Why did he place human beings at the pinnacle of his creation? Because he wanted someone to whom he could relate and who could relate to him in return. Now, we're in deep, deep water here because we can't suggest that God needs someone with whom to share a relationship. He is sufficient to himself. He needs nothing and no one. Nevertheless, just as it's in his nature to create, so it's in his nature to relate. He is both a creator and a relater. And that's mind-blowing. The eternal God wants to share a relationship with you and with me. He wants to get to know us, to express his love for us. He wants us to love him in return. What's the most important and, and fulfilling part of human life? 
the daily commute to the office, the tremendous fun of getting stuck in the traffic on the M25, or the weekly expedition to Sainsbury's or Tesco's or wherever, the sheer joy of manhandling the vacuum cleaner upstairs. You enjoy it so much, don't you? You look forward to it with such anticipation. No, of course you don't. The most important part of human life is the time we spend with the people we love. And that is exactly the same as the impulse that God has. He wants to know us and love us and relate to us. That's why he made us. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them so he could relate to us and we could relate to him. The saddest statistic of all, I think, is the growing number of elderly people, people who live alone, for whom loneliness is increasingly what makes up a greater part of the day. It's in our nature to form relationships. It's in God's nature as well. But it all went wrong through an act of disobedience, which I believe absolutely happened, an historical fact, I'm sure, that it was an historical event, the act of disobedience that human beings made against the will of God, described in Genesis chapter 3. Through that act of disobedience, the relationship God wanted to share with us was ruined. Human beings disobeyed and they lost their fellowship with God. His heartbroken cry echoes down the centuries. Adam, where are you? Can you hear the pain in that cry? He came looking for them, looking to talk and walk with them, and they were nowhere to be seen. Adam, where are you? You're not there anymore. It's the greatest tragedy in the history of the universe. Even so, all was not lost. Among the unchangeable truths we find in the first three chapters of Genesis is that they tell us that despite the fact that that relationship was ruined, God has a plan to put it right and start all over again. You can find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And you find it also in our reading from Revelation 21. Here we have this wonderful picture of what God has in mind. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. Now that doesn't mean that God doesn't like bathing. It doesn't mean that at all. It means there are no more goodbyes in the new creation. That's what it means. There are no more goodbyes. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. He will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who sat upon the throne said, I am making everything new. 
Not only is God a creator and a relator, he's a restorer. One of the great fathers of the church is Irenaeus. We owe a tremendous amount, you know, to these fathers of the church. We don't know enough about them in our Reformed tradition, but let me tell you about Irenaeus. He was Bishop of Lyon at the end of the second century. He was born in Smyrna in the Near East, but he traveled all the way through the Roman Empire to France during a time of great persecution. The bishop he succeeded had died as a martyr, but Irenaeus had a more peaceful time, and he wrote a whole number of highly significant books refuting heresy and formulating much of the theology on which our faith rests today. And his great contribution is known as the doctrine of recapitulation. It's based on Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 5. Just as the first human beings disobeyed and ruined the relationship with God, so Jesus came as a second Adam. And into every disobedient step that the first Adam made, he poured his obedience. Thus recapitulating recapitulating God's original plan and restoring everything to perfection. John Henry Newman used exactly this hymn in his, uh, this idea in his hymn, Praise to the Holiest in the Height. O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O wisest love, that flesh and blood which did in Adam fail should strive afresh against the foe should strive and should prevail. The center of God's restoration plan is the event we've just been celebrating, the incarnation, the coming of God into his world as a tiny, helpless infant. And in that life of love and obedience, we see not just the example we must follow, we see the power with which to do so. He stands before us now, and he reminds us that as we break bread and pour wine, He wants to feed us with himself so that his life can transform us and make us anew and make us what we once were intended to be, sons and daughters of the creator of the universe. So we ask, why creation? Was it a project worth pursuing in the long run? The answer is yes. (laughs) It has to be yes because of God's nature. He is a creator. He is a relator. He is a restorer, and no matter how deeply sin has marred his image in you and me, one day, through his grace, that restoration will be complete. Amen.